Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked into the second canto of Purgatorio, the second third of Dante's masterwork comedy. In Canto 2, we have started the first of two main incidents or scenes. We saw something white coming fast toward us <laughs> last time. I think I broke the passage in a very unnatural spot. Sorry. There's just so much to say about all of this that I kind of had to just break it down into smaller chunks, despite the fact that it kind of stopped unnaturally. Anyway, this one will not stop as unnaturally, but will continue on to the toward the conclusion of this first incident. We're at lines 25 through 42 of Canto 2 of Purgatorio. This is my English translation of the medieval Florentine. If you want to find it, you can find it on my website, Mark Scarborough, or walkingwithdante.com. It goes to the same place. You can read along, print it off, make notes, drop a comment, do all that stuff there if you would like. Otherwise, just sit back and get Get ready for the arrival of the unbelievable brightness. My master still didn't utter a word, but when that first whiteness appeared to be wings, then he recognized the boatman and cried out to me, Do it! Do it! Get down on your knees! Behold the angel of God! Fold your hands! From now on out, you're going to see officials of this ilk. See how he disdains all human devices, so much so that he won't use oars or sails, nothing else except his wings, even though the shores are so far apart. See how he stretches his wings straight up toward heaven, beating the air with those eternal feathers that won't ever molt as mortal plumage does. Then, as the heavenly bird came closer and closer, its radiance got so much brighter that my eyes couldn't take it up close. So I looked down, and he came up to the shore with a ship so fast and light that its keel drew no water at all. There's the passage, the landing and docking of the boat that the angel is driving. We know that this boat is coming the way that Ulysses came to purgatory, but with such a different purpose. Here's what I'd like to do in this episode of the podcast. First, talk through Four figures from Inferno who actually appear mm, subliminally? No, they, they appear more than subliminally. They appear kind of under the surface of this passage. And then from there on out, talk about, oh, Virgil and some issues about the development of purgatory and finally end up with what will become a major thematic for Purgatorio ahead. Let's start with our infernal characters, as I mentioned. There are four of them. And let's start with the first one up, and it's Phlegias. Phlegias, remember, is the boatman on the River Styx. We're at the Circle of the Wrathful and the Sullen down in Inferno. And down there in Canto 8, we have two different references to Phlegas that come up in this passage. One is that Virgil then recognized 
the boatman. The word used there is the same word used to describe Phlegias. And while one word repeated might not lead us to think that Phlegias is in this passage, it's the very end of it that really sets him there. The angel comes up to the shore in the boat, so fast and light it says that its keel drew no water at all. Remember back in Inferno 8, lines 25 through 30, when Dante the Pilgrim steps into Phlegus's boat, it sinks a bit in the water, and then as they go back toward the city of Dis, from which Phlegus has come, the prow is heavy in the water with the weight of Dante. And we talked all about the physical presence and physical versus spiritual and weight and mass and matter. We talked all about that, and I told you that it remained an unsolved problem for Dante. Well, he seems here to start to solve it, because this boat is, well, it's drawing no water. It's got no draft, because what's in it doesn't take up any mass. The angel and, as we will see, the shades, the souls of the redeemed who are in it. Is the boat physical? Oh, there's a question for you, and a question I can't even answer. Is the boat itself material? I don't know, but I can tell you it's not drawing any water. It's not sitting down heavy in the water, and that calls us back to Phlegus. That calls us back to the pilgrim getting in that boat. Phlegus is definitely sitting back behind this text, and it's interesting because, of course, the Styx River scenes are with the angry and the sullen, and we will see in the next episode of this podcast that these souls are anything but angry. Remember, they get torn apart in sticks and Dante even wishes to see Filippo Argenti torn limb from limb and it happens and this is raging outrage that goes on in sticks. It's the very opposite chaotic scene to what is now going to occur, the disembarkment of these souls on the shores of purgatory. But right now... We're just here, and we have a boatman who is very different than the enraged Phlegas, a boatman who appears to be, shall we say, above it all. The second figure we would have to remark on here is Karen. And Karen sits at that same moment at the end of this passage where it says a keel drew no water. The reason I say this is because back in Inferno 3 at line 93, Karen, before he will let Dante into his boat to cross Acheron, Karen says, no, 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 no. You can't get in this boat because you have to go by a lighter boat than this one. Here's clearly the lighter boat. Karen does sit behind this text in a way that this is fulfilling what Karen said. We're now seeing the way that would be for Dante were he dead. He's not, but were he dead, Karen is sitting back behind this text as a guardian of hell in the same way that coming over water here, we have a guardian to purgatory and the afterlife of the redeemed, this angel who is the helmsman on this boat. Here's a third character inside this passage. The ever 
popular Ulysses. <laughs> Ulysses is just all through the first two cantos of Purgatorio. It's right about, oh, let's say about line 31, 32. Virgil says, see how the angel, see how he, the angel, disdains all human devices so much so that he won't use oars or sails, nothing except his wings, even though the shores are so far apart. The last time we heard about oars was with Ulysses, and he tried to turn his oars, same word, into wings at Inferno 26, line 125. Karen, Phlegas, Ulysses, someone who guards the world of the damned, someone who ferries people across the boiling river of Styx and on toward Dis and Lower Hell, the false counselor. These figures are sitting here, boundary figures, figures who cross boundaries, uh, Phlegas and Karen keep boundaries. Ulysses tries to cross a boundary, either people who man the fence or people who try to break the fence and move it. And here we have somebody breaking a fence, that is the angel bringing these souls to purgatory. But in this case, of course, it's all divinely sanctioned. But there's one more person here in this text from Inferno, and this person is possibly the most shocking I'm back at the start of the passage. My master still didn't utter a word, but when that first whiteness appeared to be wings, he then recognized the boatman. The word used there is galeotto. Guess who else uses galeotto? Francesca. In Inferno, Canto 5, line 137, when she and Paolo are reading that book about Guinevere and Lancelot and their illicit love affair, she says that book was our Galeotto. And remember, we stopped on it and we said, well, it could be because of the French writer of Guinevere and Lancelot Tales and Galot, and maybe that's how that word exists there. Ah, well, if we know this passage, Galeotto, then we know what Francesca is saying. That book was our helmsman. That book was our boatsman. That book is what steered us into our damnation. We are entering a world, as you will discover, in which love is the primary defining characteristic and that there's just a little bit of, oh, what do I want to say, a little whiff of Francesca and her lust here is really kind of genius. We're entering an afterlife in which we are going to have long, complicated discussions about what love is. Right before we get there, we get the word galeotto, which is such a problematic word when it's back with Francesca. But now, if we look at this passage and then go back to Francesca, we say, ah, we know what this is about. This is about crossing borders. This is about being a boatman. This is about being ferried somewhere. And she's claiming that the book was their ferryman. So why are there so many references to Inferno? And for the last couple of podcasts, I've really been banging on about various figures sitting under the text, Ulysses, Karen, Flegas, Francesca, and more sitting under this text. Why are there so many? I don't have a firm answer to this, but I'm going to offer you five rationales for why Dante is making this so much about Inferno. One is 
let's say this is a reflection of the overwhelming nature of writing Inferno. Inferno was such an unbelievable task in the vernacular to describe this incredibly vulgar bodily landscape, to give it a thematic, to make it a journey, to make it a story. All of that is so big that we're not surprised that when we come out to the second canticle, the second part of Dante's comedy, we still have echoes, reverberations. You know, it's, it's if you did this monumental thing, this monumental piece of art, and then you're starting a second part or a little bit of a new way to go, but you still got echoes of that old thing because it was just so overwhelming in and of itself. That could be why there's so much infernal reference here. Or it could be that we're simply looking at Dante's continued notion of world building and that his world building is so intense that what I want to say, it's starting to bracket itself. If you know mathematics, let's say his world building is getting so elaborate that it's becoming a closed set. Inside this closed set, remember the old thing about you have to do the operations inside parentheses first. Remember that from high school mathematics? Well, that's it. The parentheses. So inside this closed set that is forming in this world building, it is starting to function with and in itself. Or, and here's a third possible reading. Maybe we're getting a lot of references to Inferno because Dante believes that you, the reader, have been through Inferno. <laughs> have you? If not, uh, go back. There's 231 episodes back there on Inferno. But you and Dante have been through <laughs> Inferno. And so he's creating a community with you. You and he speak a common language, a language of Francesca, Karen, Flagias, Ulysses. You speak a language that resonates, Galeotto. You've got your own dialect. This is the dream of a writer, is that you will build a community with your reader so that you and the reader start to exist on common terms. This is the brilliance of Faulkner and Yachnopatawa County, building so many novels with so many layers on one little county so that Faulkner's readers start to become imbued with Yachnopatawa County or one of Faulkner's heirs, Louise Erdrich, the indigenous writer from the United States. She, too, has developed a set of novels taking place on a reservation in North Dakota, maybe Minnesota. It's a little unclear where this reservation actually is, but let's say it's North Dakota. This uh, indigenous people's plot of land. So many stories have happened on this plot of land that Erdrich is building a community of her own readers who speak a kind of common language. When she mentions a nanapush, we all know who have read Erdrich exactly what she means by that and know the stories that connect to that name. So Dante's hope may be hoping for the same thing. Or here's another. Dante may be intentionally increasing the difficulty of his poem, increasing the difficulty so that, in fact, we are taking harder and harder steps. It's like, um, you know, working out and increasing your weight load, you know, or, okay, like you bench, I, I, I don't know, I'm making this up, you bench 40 kilos. And then, you know, eventually you want to get to 50 kilos. So this may be what Dante's doing. He's upping the difficulty because you're getting ready for hard 
harder and harder stuff. Or here's a fifth possible idea. The poem is becoming intertextual with itself. Now, this is really high literary stuff, so let me explain this. Intertextual means when one text talks to another, and we know that comedy is intensely intertextual. It's been intertextual with Ovid. Think about those scenes with the thieves and the metamorphoses of the thieves and Dante saying, oh, even Lucan and Ovid can't outdo me, right? So it's been intertextual with Ovid, and of course, its big node of intertextuality is with Virgil. But there's a second one, too, but we just haven't talked about it enough. Also with Thomas Aquinas, we might even argue that St. Thomas Aquinas is the biggest node of intertextuality in comedy. But we're getting closer and closer to talking more and more about Aquinas. So it's sitting there. For us right now, let's just say it's Virgil. Well, maybe in a very, very elaborate strategy, the poem is starting to become intertextual with itself. It's wrapping on itself. It's becoming, I don't want to say a hall of mirrors because that sounds like a fun house, but at the same time, a hall of mirrors in that there are so many reflective surfaces. And the poem, in the same way that it is intertextual with Ovid and with Lucan and with Virgil, it's starting to become intertextual with itself. Okay, let's go on and look at the passage, and I've got mm, essentially three things I want to say about this passage. Let's start at the beginning again. My master, there's Virgil, still didn't utter a word, but when that first whiteness appeared to be wings, he then recognized the boatman and cried out. Stop right there. Virgil is as clueless as the pilgrim Dante about who this is arriving. Now, it is true that Virgil realizes this is an angel first, and that may be important, and we're going to come back to that. And also, Virgil is quite excited. He cries out, do it, do it. In the Florentine, it's fa, fa. <laughs> Get down on your knees. He becomes very excitable at this point because he's figured out who this is. But there are a couple strange little side points that we want to point out about Virgil in this passage. While he tells the pilgrim to bow down, does Virgil ever bow down? I don't think so. He didn't bow down with Cato, and he doesn't seem to bow down here. Now, let me tell you, if you go out and look at Gustave Doré illustrations or 90 million illustrations of this passage, you're going to see Dante and Virgil bowing down. Even some medieval manuscript illuminations have them both bowing down. Nah, I don't see him bowing down in this passage. I don't see any evidence that Virgil has bent the knee. That's interesting in and of itself, despite the fact that so many people think maybe it should have happened and thus represented in paintings and drawings. His unbowed stance seems to bring up a lot of problems. And let's talk about this for a minute. Why doesn't Virgil bow down in front of this angel? Well, there may be just a little, what do I want to say, residue of sulfur on Virgil. Just a little bit of the hellish nature still on him. He remains unbowed as Satan was. Maybe. 
It seems overstated to say that to me, given who Virgil is, but maybe there's a lesser degree of the satanic pride in Virgil, but it's still there. So that's why I said a whiff or a little bit of sulfur, just a whiff of sulfur still on Virgil. We can say that there is still a question about the method of Virgil's guiding. How do I say this? The how is questionable uh, when it comes to Virgil as a guide. The if or that is not questionable. (laughs) That sounds overly complicated. What I mean is it's certain that Virgil is the guide. How he's going to be the guide may still be a little undetermined inside the poem itself. So we know he's going to be the guide. We've been signaled to that repeatedly. Cato signaled us that. We kind of know this, that Virgil's really going to be the guide through purgatory. And yet at the same time, how is that going to work exactly? And what's his relationship to this angel? Well, there may be an answer here, and it's an interesting answer about angels. So let me just have this for a second in Dante's day. Angels are considered to be pure spirit. This is the orthodox interpretation of what an angel is. That is, it has no mass. Now, this is really important, and we've talked a little bit about this before, but I want to remind you. The question of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin is actually a very important question because the answer, essentially, as I've told you before, is one or infinity. Those are the only two possible answers. I mean, okay, it could be two, three, four. But what I mean is there's a countable number or an uncountable number that can dance on the head of a pin. Because if there's a countable number, that means angels can take up mass. So if there are two, let's pretend, or four dancing on the head of a pin, there's no more room. There couldn't be a fifth. Well, if there's no more room, then they take up dimensionality. The other answer is that infinity could dance on the head of a pin because they don't have any mass and they don't take up any dimensionality. The answer in Dante's day, the orthodox answer, is becoming that angels are pure spirit. And this leads Aquinas and others to a rather wild assertion. And the assertion is that angels don't learn anything because they cannot use their senses. And since Aquinas uses Aristotle as the basis of his physiology, Aristotelian logic will tell us that you learn through your senses. If angels are non-corporeal or purely spirit, then they don't have senses in the way that you and I have senses, so they don't learn through those senses. So the conclusion is, I know this is a long way around, that they just know everything intuitively. They don't ever come to a realization. If that's the case, then Virgil may exist in this weird median plane. He knows this is an angel before the corporeal pilgrim does. So he learns it through his senses. Can a shade do that? But he learns it before the embodiment bodied pilgrim Dante learns it. Now, listen, how does he know this is an angel? Mm, 
good question. And perhaps it's part of this intuitive knowing, thus putting Virgil in a weird median space between angels and Dante the Pilgrim and the other souls. Maybe it's a special place just for Virgil. I realize that seems very highly esoteric, but the passage seems to ask us to get that esoteric. Why does Virgil recognize who this is before the pilgrim? Don't you think the pilgrim has seen representations of angels on, I don't know, the baptistry in Florence? Don't you think he would know who this is first? Apparently not. Virgil does. Going on in the passage. So Virgil cries out, do it, do it, get down on your knees, behold the angel of God, fold your hands from now on out, you're going to see officials of this ilk. See how he disdains all human devices, so much so that he won't use oars or sails, nothing else except his wings, even though the shores are so far apart. It means coming all the way back from what well, we'll discover from the Italian peninsula, but we'll discover that ahead. See how he stretches his wings straight up toward heaven, beating the air with those eternal feathers that won't ever mold as mortal plumage does. I want to connect that last line, won't ever mold as mortal plumage does, with officials of this ilk. Officiali. What it points us to is that heaven is a bureaucracy. We have a lot more to say about this ahead. But the developing notion of purgatory happens at the same time that you get this idea that there is a bookkeeping problem in the afterlife. Well, let me explain this just a minute. In the early visions in Christianity and even back into Judaism, in the early visions of the afterlife, there's no necessary bookkeeping quality. Oh, look, you did this on this day and this day on this day and this on this day. There's no record keeping. But slowly this notion develops that heaven is, or the afterlife, is a giant accounting firm. Early on, the notions are that it is the quality of your acts, not the quantity of them, that make the big difference. But slowly that changes, and it becomes a question not just of the quality of your evil or good acts, but the quantity of them. You can feel this coming with indulgences and penances. Heaven becomes full of officials. It becomes a bureaucracy. And because it's a big accounting firm, the eternal feathers won't ever molt as mortal plumage does. Nothing is ever lost. The rush comes back. This is all part of seeing the afterlife as a giant matter of bookkeeping. And you've got this tally of things you've got to atone for. You made this many errors. Uh, We'll discover there are actually quantifiable amounts that you have to atone for certain things. You made this error. That means, I don't know, 700 years in purgatory, 600 years in purgatory, 100 more years in purgatory. Heaven and the afterlife become increasingly bureaucratic. And so we're not shocked when the angel is actually an official. (laughs) It's somebody who runs the state. Gosh, I'd like to think about this angel with a pension. It's a court with courtly functions including bookkeepers, so that nothing is ever lost. 
Okay, the end of the passage. Then as the heavenly bird came closer and closer, its radiance got so much brighter that my eyes couldn't take it up close. So I looked down, and he came up to the shore with the ship so fast and light that its keel drew no water at all. What I want to talk about here, we've talked about the keel, but what I want to talk about here is my eyes couldn't take it. The pilgrim can't see this because it's so bright. This is going to become a major thematic in all of comedy ahead. Everything is going to be so bright that, in fact, Dante the Pilgrim has to wait a minute before he can see it. Here he drops his eyes. I just want you to think about this for a minute. Think about the truth being too bright. I'm reminded here of an Emily Dickinson poem that starts out, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies too bright for our infirm delight. In other words, you have to tell the truth and you have to tell all of it. But the thing is, you can't tell it all at once. It's too bright. So you have to kind of tell it slant, to use Dickinson's phraseology. It's the same thing here, that the truth is coming. It's really intense. You can barely take it. So you have to drop your eyes. And you know what? Nobody reprimands the pilgrim for dropping his eyes. It's okay when somebody tells you their truth, when somebody says, "Uh, I'm leaving my husband because he hits me. It's okay if you drop your eyes. It's okay if the truth is momentarily too bright. Don't beat yourself up. It is the pilgrim's journey to learn how to look at the truth, but you have to learn how to look at it. I'm not going to read this passage. Uh, I'm going to leave it alone because I'm going to read the whole angel experience in the next episode of this podcast. So for now, let's just say rate, like, subscribe. Please do those things. I can use ratings. I can definitely use comments, even just great podcasts. Thank you so much for doing that. Mostly thanks for being on the journey with me. I am very excited to be here in Purgatorio. It is so complicated, but wow, I love being up to the task, and I love that you're up to the task with me. So let's keep going, finishing off the Angel episode in the next episode of Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you then. (laughs) 